Welcome to our second season of Shooting the Breeze. This time, we're casting our net wider. We're going to be talking to inspiring athletes, amazing coaches, and behind-the-scenes trailblazers from across the women's basketball landscape. As we start the run-up to the Olympics, another WNBL season, and the FIBA Women's World Cup being held right here in Sydney, as well as the Opals being ranked number two in the world, this is a great time to be a fan of Australian women's basketball. Don't forget to subscribe and be the first to know when we have more hoops goodness headed your way. Welcome to this episode of Shooting the Breeze. Today it's a special one. We're being joined by Sandy Brondello, head coach of the Australian Opals, head coach of the Phoenix Mercury, just as the WNBA season is about to launch into their 25th season. We'll be talking about the Olympics, the upcoming Women's World Cup, and her journey from Mackay in far north Queensland to the basketball world stage. And we allow the young children to know that, hey, you got to dare to dream, because anything is possible. If you see someone else doing it, why can't you do it? And today we have a very special guest. It's Sandy Brondello, head coach of the Opals, joining us. Sandy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. I know we're really tight for time, so let's just get right into this one. How does a girl from Mackay in Queensland get into basketball? Because Mackay is not what I would classify as the heartland of Australian basketball. Yeah, look, that's a really good question. Um, I was just lucky my sister had put a team together with some of her friends and just went in to watch and there was actually a club, a country club called Midgets Basketball and they were short, they were looking for some players. So they asked me and, and I said, yeah, I'd love to. And really the rest is history and, and just fell in love with the game really from day one. It was just so much fun and, you know, now when I look back, it's just crazy what I've been able to achieve. But you know, obviously, it doesn't really matter where you come from. And that's obviously the message I have for so many people. I'm a sugarcane farmer's daughter. You know, grew up in the, you know, the country. and But you worked really hard and very dedicated. So you, you do that, anything can happen. And I'm guessing there probably wouldn't have been a whole lot of basketball courts at that time? There was an indoor stadium in Mackay Basketball. And it's obviously really developed since then with, a, you know, four, three more, I think, indoor stadiums, multi-purpose wow stadium there so it really has grown and we've had great support but we you know obviously in the younger years in the lower levels we played mostly on outdoor courts so there was a few scraped knees but you know I only just have fond memories it didn't matter I was with my friends having fun and and developing you know my game each and every year and I had good coaches you know Carol Inch was my first club coach and then the great Norma Conley was my representative coach so that gave me a good you know, skill development and helped me to grow as a player. Okay. When I was doing some research, I came across a little fact that said that you were an Australian long jump champion. Is that correct? Yeah, it is correct. I was in, uh, I started doing track and field with a local club here and, and traveled all around Queensland from the age of eight. So, you know, I was pretty fast. I used to help my dad on the cane fields and, you know, lifting pipes and mud. So I think that kind of background kind of helped me in, bit of a tomboy growing up, so, you know, I was always riding motorbikes, riding a bike and um, doing great things. Yeah, and I was into track and field, and I actually quite enjoyed it. I went in a lot of events, you know, but I preferred the short sprints and long jump. The long jump, well, that was my main one, and, yeah, in my final year of primary school, I went to the Australian Championships and won, and I really actually didn't want to go to it, quite honest. I was 
I was uh, didn't want to leave home, so my mum actually came with me. That's the only reason I got on the plane because I had to go to Brisbane for two weeks to to train for it. And I didn't do much training leading into it. I just had relied on natural talent. But my brother actually said, if I go, if I win the gold, he'll give me his motorbike. So that was the only motivation that I needed. So that was the highlight. <laughs> and he did come across with the, with the motorbike, I guess. He did. Yes. He did. My brother, my. Well, the brother that's closest to me, Dale, he, he wasn't real happy with it, so we fought over it a fair bit, but I did get the motorbike, so it was uh, it was a great reward having to, to leave home, but, you know, grateful that mum obviously was able to come with me and made it easier for me. Yeah. You touched on this before. When you did start your basketball journey, did you ever think you'd end up where you are today? No, look, no. I mean, I suppose when you're that young, you don't realise the avenues that were available for the sport. And But I do remember, you know, obviously the, the WNBL was up playing as I got a little older and I made an Australian team, Australian junior team from the age of 16. It was an under-21 team from Mackay. And you know, I suppose it just gave me... You know, I was competitive, obviously. You know, I was being track and field. Every time I went into something, I wanted to win. You know, it was, you know, dad would obviously say, oh, the 400 metre dart, just jog it. Yeah, right. If I'm going in it, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do my best because I had that competitive fire and I certainly helped me. And I do remember at, you know, probably 15 or 16, I said, I'm going to play watching these, uh, you know, ones playing for Australian, wasn't called the Opals then, but yeah, Australian team. It's like, I want to play for the Australian team. And I think some people probably thought that was, you know, beyond because of where we're from. But, you know, I was extremely motivated and, and it just goes to show you have to dare to dream. You have to, you know, put your sights up high. And, you know, I was lucky that things really worked out for me. And once I left school, I, I went to the Australian Institute of Sport. That's where my biggest development was. And, you know, I made the Australian team at, at the age of 18 and, and played until I retired at the age of 36 and still in the game. So I have so much passion for it. Um, and, you know, the goal is to continue to keep getting better and better, even though I'm in the, the coaching side of things now. I was actually thinking initially to sort of open the interview by just running through a few of the highlights of your career. And when I actually started going through it, I thought, well, that's going to eat up pretty much the entire interview. So I'll <laughs> put that that idea to one side. <laughs> yeah, no complaints. It's been a fun ride. But when I look back, it's all about the, you know, the memories that I had with my teammates. You know, obviously winning Olympic medals is, was fantastic. And that will, something I'll never forget. But it's, you know, it's the, the players that, you know, have become they're my family, and those friends from those days are still my very best friends. And having been up in the WNBL hub up in Townsville, it was great to share that with, you know, Rachel Spawn and Alison Tranquility and Gail Henderson, Janine Hill. Yeah. You know, they're really close to me, and and it was great to for them. We had a visit, and we just doesn't matter how long you haven't seen them for. You just pick up, and we have many laughs about the the great memories we had playing together. Yeah, it's it's interesting you touch on the history because. Over the months we've interviewed different players, one of the things we have noticed is that some of the younger players really don't have that full understanding of what's gone into the WNBL and the Opals over the years. And that's why interviews like this, I think, are really good because it not only helps to educate the wider community but also people within the sport who have come into it more recently and haven't really understood everything that's taken place coming into it. Definitely. And, and look, we're really big on that as the Opals. Um, you know, we always, you know, ha- obviously have a lot of respect for the ones that become before us. And, and that's so important because they kind of paved the way. And, 
you know, obviously I came into that generation when we started to lift up our world ranking and started to win Olympic medals. And that's what expected of us now. And, you know, I think obviously the ones that are really talented, I think they kind of know the players before us. But yeah, there's great history. We've had so many amazing players back from the 1960s that, um, mm. you know, it, it's love. You know, that's the, you know, what's it mean to be an Opal? And it's yeah. really started with them. There's this great pride and, and just putting the green and gold on. And, and that's hasn't changed. It will never change and it should never change because we, we want to make sure we're representing our country well and remembering the ones that, you know, came before us. Absolutely. A little while back, we interviewed Annie Lafleur, and she talked about the 2000 Olympics and what it meant to play on the world stage in front of family and friends here at home. What were those games like for you? Oh, best time of my life. You know, I played over 300 games for Australia, and you know, I think if you had the one, the biggest highlight was playing in Sydney in front of, you know, my mum and dad. They don't have many opportunities to watch me play, and you know, without their support, I probably would never be where I am today. And you know, having my brother and and, and a lot of my friends and playing in front of the Australian public. I still don't think the the Opals get as much recognition as they deserve, but we felt very special during that. And, and obviously we didn't win the gold medal, but we won the silver medal and we're really proud of that achievement. But there's nothing better than playing in front of your home crowd. And that opportunity doesn't always come up. And that's why I'm really super excited for the World Cup in Sydney in 2022. I think we've you know, with the Olympics next year and hopefully we can have great success and continue to make our Opal players more household names. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, the recognition factor for the Opals always spikes around the Olympics, but then when you look at all the other international tournaments, it's very rare that we get that level of promotion and visibility as we do around the Olympics. What do you think is a a root cause for that? Yeah, look, to be quite honest, I think the biggest thing is that a lot of other sports, let's just say the soccer team, you know, they play more games in Australia. And I think that's the visibility that you need. And, you know, it's kind of hard for us because it is a lot of money (laughs) to bring teams to Australia. So if there's some really great big sponsors out there that really want to get aboard, um, you know, second best team in the world and some fantastic players um, and that's what you need you know you're just trying to make sure we have the right preparation but hopefully we can build on that in this next two years you know bringing really good teams to Australia and being on TV a little bit more I think that certainly helped with the whole overall marketing we've got an opportunity as we move forward but I think that's the, the difference there I think we have a great spectacle I think our sport is you know very entertaining and we just need more really good games back on home soil. Yeah, well, obviously the the games that the NBL had with the Boomers with the US team obviously helped to spike interest. Now, we need to move that over to the women's game to be able to get that level of interest up. I think, and I'm hopeful that having two major events in two years is going to help us to raise that level of profile. And I think the hubs, in in one respect, has helped that because there's been a lot more coverage in the media and in the newspapers than there has been in years before. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's, you know, that's what you need. I played in the WNBA bubble in Florida, uh, condensed season there, and every game was, you know, covered on TV, whether maybe national, but, you know, the, the local TVs or Twitter and Facebook. And our audience went up by 68%. So it's just getting visibility. People will flick on, they'll find something on TV and say, you are, okay, this is pretty good. They may never have seen women's basketball before, but I always say, well, just bring people along and they'll 
they'll enjoy it because it's highly competitive and you saw it up in the WNBL hub. Just very impressive with the, the overall standard and quality of the games. And, you know, 18 of the 23 Opal squad members were playing in that league. And that's how we continue to grow the game. And, you know, hopefully we can continue to get the support of Fox Sports, ABC, or even, you know, primetime TV, which would be great because I think that's a step in the right direction of trying to grow the sport, the women's side. And so we have a great opportunity moving forward. Something that just came up for me as you were going through that, one of the complaints that, because you, know, you were talking about social media, one of the complaints that you always see on social media is that the women's game is not as explosive as the men's game. From my point of view, one of the reasons for that is they are different games. How do you think the, we can educate people just because it's called basketball doesn't mean it's the same game? Yeah, well, I tend to disagree in that regard. I just think it's basketball and these are highly skilled players. Like if you get a male and a female player out in the court working on individuals, I mean, you may be some are more explosive, but not all of them. Yep. Um, you know, that's the versatility that we have in our game. But their skill level is really, really just the same. It's, you know, maybe they have a little bit more athleticism, but we're just as strong and it's a very entertaining game. It's a fast game. You have great shooters. Um, I think we're very versatile. So it's really just an appreciation and changing people's mindset. Yeah. Okay, we're not going to be dunking. And it's more about, I think the biggest difference, and, you know, I know the NBL gets like that too. They have great coaches, but it's more of a team game. It's not just one-on-one isolations, which is not really attractive in in my opinion. It's a lot of teamwork. So I I don't really see a really big difference other than they maybe play above the rim a little bit more. I think we have great talent and some of our players are just as good as some of those men's players and, that's the difference. It's changing the mindset. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, it's a women's game. You know, it's no, they're just so as competitive and very driven and dedicated and amazing players. Oh, absolutely. And if anybody had any doubts about that, they should have watched any of the games that were being played up in the hub. Agreed. <laughs> okay, let's just step away from basketball for a little bit and talk about what does Sandy do when she's away from the court and the game? How do you relax? What do you do with your free time? What little you have? <laughs> Yeah, no, look, I obviously I'm a mother of two. So, you know, spending time with my children is a high priority and my husband. You know, we just like to enjoy things as a family. And, you know, if we're going on holidays, it's always somewhere near the beach. So I'm unfortunately, I'm away from my family now. But we love coming back to Australia and just being on the beach and, and enjoying that family time. We like playing games. We like going to the, you know, not now, but, uh, you know, just watching movies and, and being active, to be quite honest. I try and get them out. <laughs> Let's go do this, you know. So that's good for me to keep me kind of young. But, I look, I love what I do. I do watch a lot of basketball, probably a little bit too much at time. But my husband is also a professional coach. So, you know, it's great to have that kind of support at home. But we do, you know, realise I do need to click off at times and and just enjoy, you know, the time that we do have together because once the season starts, it is quite intense. Yeah, I was going to say, I was reading about how you and your husband, Olaf, handled the WNBA bubble with the family. And it was a very interesting approach that you guys took. Did that take a little bit of getting used to for all of you? Not really, to be quite honest. My husband and I, like, we've coached over in Russia together. He was the head coach of the big team over there, Olgemka in Ekaterinburg. Um, I was his assistant coach for five years. And then, you know, it was you know it was just really tiring. I also coached in the WNBA. So I took the last year off. And, you know, we're apart. We've had times when we're apart. We had times, you know, when, when I was playing, when he was back in Germany, where he's from, coaching over there as well, too. So I suppose that helps that he's actually in the sport. And our kids have grown up around the sport, that it's, 
not a really big adjustment. You start them early on planes, it's nothing's different for them. They love being around the teams. My husband obviously is the assistant coach of a different team. With He's with the Chicago Sky, where I was I'm the head coach of the Phoenix Mercury now and going into a bubble, we would have been apart. He would have been living in Chicago if there wasn't a pandemic and we had a regular season. But in the bubble, we didn't live together because of our schedules and a little professional integrity, but we still saw each other, but we worked so much. And our kids just adapt and they really enjoyed the experience. I think it was quite unique for them. And, you know, they just know this is what mum and dad does and they can come along and enjoy the experience with us. So that we're very thankful for that. It's interesting you, you touched on that point about how the kids like hanging around the team. I know certainly with, with my kids, they've really enjoyed hanging around with the team and they find that the players are very inspirational. Do you find that your kids take inspiration from the players that they get to know? Yeah, definitely. Especially my daughter. I mean, my son is probably a little shy, but the players just... You know, they just embrace, and I'm all about family. Some of my players have family, and, you know, it's very inclusive, and we take care of them because, you know, we are, we're not just players or coaches. We're also mothers and wives. So the, the whole family concept, I think that's important so that we can all, you know, be the best that we can. But, yeah, my kids have you've met so many of the players and, you know, just like family, and they start taking care of the little babies as well too. And Jada... You know, she was doing TikToks with the, you know, different, both my team and then she'll be with the Chicago girls. And, and it's great just how, you know, they're just wonderful, wonderful human beings. And not just, we don't see them just as basketball players, but, you know, just obviously what they do to make those kids feel comfortable as well. It's, you know, they had a great time. And, you know, my son, you know, he kind of thinks it's, you know, he tries to act cool. He's almost 14, so he's in that teenage year. But, you know, he's very proud that, you know, obviously they know him by his name and stuff like that from other teams, not, you know, Phoenix, they know him, but they've been around for so long. So, and I think that's great. You know, it's kind of unique and you hear him talking to his friends about it. So I think, you know, they've enjoyed what they've been able to to do since our babies, to be quite honest. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the things that is really amazing about certainly the WNBL is the ability for the fans to be able to interact with the players in a way that you can't necessarily do in some of the bigger leagues. Do you think that that's a really good way of getting the word out in amongst the wider community? Yeah, no, definitely. I think, you know, I think the WNBL and our players do a great job and the individual teams of making the players accessible. You know, after they've warmed down, they kind of can go and get autographs of the players sitting around and, you know, be engaged. And it is, we do have a responsibility to being role models, positive role models, knowing that, you know, these young girls can look up to these women and say, wow, you know, they're so athletic they're amazing women and they want to, you know, help that next generation. That's part of what we want to do because that's how we continue to grow the games. We get more people playing basketball and we allow the young children to know that, hey, you got to dare to dream because anything is possible. If you see someone else doing it, why can't you do it? Great. Now, you had three years playing for Sydney in the WNBL back when the team was known as the Bruins. From your point of view, how different was the league and the game then to what it's become here now? Uh, look, to be quite honest, I just think the players get a little bit more skilled. They're way more athletic. Probably their bodies, they're more versatile. But, you know, I think we had a really high-level game back then too. If anything, I think players get taller, get bigger. <laughs> and, you know, you know, we, you know, with the Opals and that league, it was really highly competitive. And I just think maybe the biggest change is we have more depth and it's more professional in terms of players are getting paid now. 
So I think that's the biggest change because, you know, everyone back there, not everyone's getting paid, you know, they'd finish work and then go to training at night, you know, so it's kind of way harder. Now it's a little easier because you can focus, not all of them doing that, they're going to university, some do work, but it's more you're focused on, okay, you know, going to practice during the day and you're lifting your weights and it's all about just being a, a professional athlete. So I think that's the biggest change. Obviously the players' skill levels improved definitely. They've gotten taller. They're probably more athletic. But, we're, you know, I always say we're still just as tough as them. And, you know, we trained crazy back in those days. And I suppose we're a little mindful <laughs> of just taking care of them a little bit. But I, I think they would break down if they had to train the way that we actually did back in the day. So... You've played the WNBL and in Europe, the WNBA medaled in the Olympics, World Championships. You've got a great view of the game as a whole. How do you see the different playing styles that various regions have and how does that make your job as a coach for the Opals more difficult when it comes to adjusting our game style to stay competitive against these different styles of play? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, as a coach, when I'm planning what my other, obviously, assistants choosing the team, it's more about we need versatility. Because as you said, the styles are all different around the world. The the African teams, you know, obviously, very fast and aggressive. And obviously, USA, we know the, you know, the best talent everywhere. You know, Europe, just the different styles. And then Japan, um, you know, that's been, you know, they're a tough style because of the way that they can shoot and they spend so much time together and they're very athletic. So I think the, the way I adapt, you know, I'm, we're trying to be the best team that we can be. And it's not always necessarily the best 12 players, to be quite honest, because when you, you know, the core group's there, but you have the players that to round out, like, do we have enough athleticism? Do we have enough playmaking? Do we have enough shooting that we can put lineups on the floor that can adapt to any kind of style. But at the same time, we really try and worry about ourselves to be the best team that we can be at both ends of the floor because other teams have to worry about us as well. So there's a little bit, you want to make sure you have the right, you know, diversity or the versatility that you have in your team that you can go from one game playing Japan when you probably have to do a little bit more switching to combat their shooting to playing, you know, obviously, you know, the Spain and just a little bit different styles with their aggressiveness. So, you know, but in the end, what's the best team that's going to help us win a medal? I, you know, I'm mindful of the different approaches. That goes into the planning and in selecting that final team. One of the things that I've noticed, and I'm sure many others have, is that we're seeing a lot more Australians playing in the WNBA. And certainly over the years, we've seen quite a number of Australian players at Phoenix. You've picked a lot of Australian players to come into the team. How have you found that that's worked, mixing, you know, the US style and people coming from that college pathway to Australians coming over who may not have gone through that college pathway? Look, I think we have an advantage coming from Australia. You know, some players, if they go through the draft, they're turning professional early because you're not allowed to enter the draft as an international player until you turn 20 that year. So we have Shyla Hill will be falling that category this year. But, you know, other players that I have chosen, I've, you know, picked in the draft is Australians are better prepared because in the WNBL, they're playing at a younger age against the best players in Australia. So I think that development really helps them. You know, I think everyone in, across the world, they love Australians because, of you know, we're very coachable. I think we're obviously very skilled. You know, we play our roles well and, you know, we're good teammates. And a lot of that goes into it as well. For the most part, these are young kids from college, you know, 22, just played their peers, whereas we're coming into the league. Some of them have played international ball. So that creates an advantage for them. And that's why we have so many of our players playing all around the WNBA, just not just in Phoenix. And you had arguably one of our, well, not arguably, definitely one of the best players that we've had in 
Penny Taylor working with you at Phoenix and playing for you in Phoenix. How did players find that migration from playing to assistant coaching or assisting in the back office? How do they find that? Look, I think it's an adjustment. You know, Penny stepped away this year because it was, you know, she has a young child and Leo. But I think they, the players, they love the game. They have all the knowledge. And then it's just them finding ways. It takes, you know, some time, some are quicker than others, just how to coach it. You know, because it's different. You're on the other end now. How do you break it down to simplify it to get your message a point? And that just comes with experience. So I think as long as you have a passion for the game, going into that coaching side, because it's a lot of hard work. I mean, I think that's what they say the most. Is like players going to coaches, they didn't realize how much work goes into getting a scout together and the preparation that goes into it. And, you know, every day is Groundhog Day, either playing or preparing <laughs> for a game. Um, but then it, I think it's just putting them in a um, situation they get experience. And with Penny, like, you know, I said, hey, you just got to learn to scout, you know, put you in front of the team. You're going to be nervous, but the more you do it, the easier it gets. So it's just having those opportunities to continue to grow. And, you know, I, it's great. I love seeing former players get into uh, coaching because I think, you know, obviously we played the game for so long and not everyone wants to do that because it's not as easy as everyone thinks it may be. But the ones that, you know, keep going, they're the ones you knew that were going to move into coaching and be really good coaches. And do you think there's um, solid pathways for players to be able to transition either from playing to coaching or from playing to no longer playing that have been set up by the various leagues? Yeah, look, um, I think there's a work in progress, to be quite honest, around the world. I know the WNBA, like, we're talking about trying to get a little bit more diversity and inclusion, which I think is useful because, you know, at the moment we have five head coaches that are women out of 12. And, you know, obviously you always want to see more women getting these opportunities because it's all about getting that opportunity and, and allowing them to grow in that role. And I'm thankful that I was able to do that in Phoenix and had really great support from my general manager. And, and then, but the WNBA, they're knowing that we don't have enough former players. You know, at the moment, there's a rule. If you actually have a former player on your coaching staff, the third coach can sit on the front of the bench. I think that's a great way. But I think everyone, this is the best league in the world. And we have so many great players that have played in our league. A lot of them do coach in the college, but some do want to go to NBA. But you know, we need more of that, you know, to entice, you know, more players to come and because, you know, we're going to continue to grow and, you know, I'm all for having as many females as we can and, and hopefully that will continue to grow. And, you know, the WNBL, you see Nat Hurst is with Adelaide and Belinda yep. Snell and it's great. They're getting those opportunities in the assistant coach roles and a lot of them go back and coach in the NBL one, which I think during those dual roles will help them, their growth, you know, quicker because as a head coach, it's a little different to being an assistant. You take that next step to the head coach. Way different, but it will help them develop way quicker. And it's not always going to be a smooth ride. If it is, you're getting very lucky. But that's how you grow. I mean, you grow through the challenges that you face day in, day out, and, and you kind of work out, you know, you have to be true to who you are, your personality, and be able to adapt and, and grow because experience, that's what experience is about, and that's the journey that makes it really enjoyable. As we're winding up, we normally throw in a couple of one unscripted question. In your case, I'm going to throw in two. One of them is one of our regulars. The other one is just something that I've been curious about for the last few years. A few years ago, you came to one of the Flames games when Cheryl was the head coach for the team. And during one of the convert, well, actually a few times, Cheryl called you spags. <laughs> so I'm really curious, where does that one come from? Oh, yeah. Look, most of my Australian friends, they all call me Spag, Spagger, 
you know. And, and it's just a nickname. Sharon May, I was at an Australian elite camp and, you know, I think I was eating spaghetti at the time, but I Brondello is Italian. So, you know, it wasn't kind of, it wasn't something that she created. I think she was just trying to be funny and it was spaghetti and then it was spag. And, and it kind of stuck, quite honest. I wasn't a fan of it initially. But now it's like, that's what everyone calls me. It, it's really strange when have Australians on the team and they call me spag in front of the, the American girls. They're like, what? <laughs> you know, so it, it's it's something that's I hear all the time back here, but in America I, I don't hear it at all, to be quite honest. So <laughs> it's stuck. <laughs> okay. And the other unscripted question that we throw out to some people we interview is, what movie character do you most identify yourself with? Wow, that's a big one, that one. Movie character. Maybe the one I wish I identified with, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> but, sure. Uh, oh, movie character. I mean, wow. You know, look, I've always been fond of Sandra Bullock. You know, I think she's an amazing actor. I think she's funny. I like to think I'm funny. Maybe not everyone thinks I'm funny. <laughs> um, but, you know, really good at what she does and, and works really hard. But seems to be like a really down-to-earth person. And I think that's like me. Like, I've been away for so long, you know, coaching overseas. and But at the heart of me, I'm still the country girl from Mackay. And my friends know that. So you're just being up with them and reconnecting and nothing changed. We just laugh so much. And, and that's what I enjoy. It doesn't matter that I'm the Australian Opals coach or, you know, I coach in the the best league in the world. Because at the heart of me, I'm still the same person that I was when I was growing up and that I played with. And and so I think Sandra Bullock is really like that. I don't know her, but <laughs> I think she's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, maybe you can get her to a game or two. Just send her people some tickets. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Sandy, I really want to thank you for your time. It's been great speaking to you, and hopefully we get a chance to talk to you again really soon. Yeah, you're welcome, Paul. It's always uh, great connecting, and yeah, all the best. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.